This call may be recorded. Hello? Hey, Ernie. Hey, Brent. Good to hear from you. How have you been? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. I've uh, been doing some stuff with this side project I'm calling Zoosophy. Uh, kind of doing a deep dive on how to talk about spirituality without getting stuck in religious language. So it's been a fun exercise. Mm. So, yeah. So uh, what exactly is EMRD? EDM. EM, EMDR. EMDR, EMDR is a is a psychological treatment. Actually, the, one of the standards for trauma recovery. Essentially, okay. it invest it it uh, it involves both sides of your brain through things like blinking alternatively or stimulating with buzzers alternatively, and it uh, uh, it it go it gets at uh, the anxiety center and different things. Anyway, it it, it uh, is a fairly well researched and regarded treatment regimen for people recovering from different kinds of trauma. Now, the the um, there uh, people in the middle of crisis sometimes don't have the capability to slow down enough to do to do a therapeutic process and so some researchers tried uh, what became known as a flash technique which is a very quick um, uh, anxiety stress whatever reducer that Uh allows somebody to take control and to slow down and to become feel better uh, what they discovered after doing this for a while is that the actual flash technique itself was just as useful as a more long-term EMDR treatment regimen. And, and, uh, and then, so uh, I have a friend in Brazil who's a world-renowned EMDR specialist, and I was telling her how I was trying to identify um, therapeutic techniques that could be translated into a pastoral care context and used by pastors without having to be clinicians. And she said, well, we should try the flash technique. So we we got going on that and created a uh, research study to train and um, measure uh, peer professionals, pastors, et cetera, their response to the process to show that it did not cause uh, it did you know people could do it safely because they've already done studies that show that that it can be done in a peer counseling context safely so um, we've been doing this but uh, we we got uh, the models okay but we, you know our it was our first pilot project with um a couple counselors and some lay people in around the united states in latin america and europe and they really took off with it and so we just finished it up and we're trying to figure out how we uh, where we go from here but i'm using it uh, uh it, it, it it's not rocket science and it's it's kind of like 
it's as simple as, oh, well, I can get the same relaxation when I take three deep breaths. That's true. But what's different about this is that you um, stimulate right and left sides of your brain by uh, what we what I've called the angel hug, which is tapping, crossing your hands and putting your your fingertips on each of your biceps and tapping slowly alternatively. And then the idea of blinking three times. So it's very fascinating because uh, it has some really tremendous spiritual applications in terms. Basically, the the amygdala is the anxiety place and uh, where you experience anxiety, fight, or fright. And right. the left, cent- left frontal cortex is where you think about it. And if you, uh, people who are traumatized, that there's a, there's a connector between those two. And people who are traumatized, that connector has become an instant on thing. So the minute you think about it or, you know, whatever, yeah. the, amyg- the amygdala kicks in. Well, there are some neuro, neuro, neurological studies that show that the amygdala takes a few milliseconds to start. And the flash technique kind of stops the instant on and allows you to substitute a relaxing scene or comment or visualization or feeling, and then you can sort of reprogram. So it's kind of weird. Kind of fun, though. Yeah, so that's fascinating. So I've been talking a lot about amygdalas lately. Um, My joke that my my son uh, for Valentine's Day uh, he was going to draw amygdalas rather than hearts because that's really where your emotions live. Uh, <laughs> but my yeah. father-in-law sent me an article from his pastor who's also an executive coach, and he was talking about amygdala hijack and, you know, the idea that the amygdala gets triggered if either it's a memory of past trauma or mm-hmm. something that's a pillar of our identity that's under threat. Right. And, and I thought that was fascinating and I said, okay, I'll buy that. The question is, are those really two different things? Or are they sort of two sides of the same thing? And, like, in some ways, is identity, at least on a continuum with trauma in terms of, of self-differentiation of some sort? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting to look at how the amygdala reacts. I mean, the amygdala is just waiting to react to something. And in in one way you could look at it and when you stimulate it negatively or when you're traumatized or abused uh your instant reaction is to go to protect and run etc and i think the same way when you find your identity being questioned i mean you know when you find people yelling at you because of some belief that you have that's really strong you know uh like if you made a comment without realizing it that stimulated the rage in somebody else on an LGBTQ thing, which probably triggers me the most right now, I, I, would, uh, I would find myself stimulated as if I was in the middle of trauma. So, yeah, you know, yeah. identity is important. So this is a fascinating thing. And the, the framing I'm playing with this week is what does it mean to become one in Christ? And this was uh, a series of conversations I had with Robbie about kind of his, uh, he's wrestling through some political relational issues 
uh, regarding this missions fest that he's helping organize, which had a, at one point had a very strict mask policy. Mm-hmm. And that generated a number of interesting reactions. And, uh, you know, we've had some uh, really interesting and productive conversations around that. But one of the things that really struck me was that, like, there's sort of the, the um, uh, epistemic part of it. Like, I believe these things are true. I have access to this data. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that is a, um, you know, it's a, a sort of questions of fact and questions of inference and things that you can. And, but then there's also uh, an interesting spiritual area. He feels like like and not just that these things are true, but these are signs of evil in the world and that uh, as a child of God, I need to oppose it. Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating to me because I certainly know that impulse. Mm-hmm. And I've been both following and wrestling with that impulse quite a lot over the last several years. And I think the thing that it really uh, came down to for me is that, um, you know, we can have an interpretation of the situation. We have all sorts of beliefs. Um, but when it becomes a matter of identity, of like, I am right because I believe this, and you are wrong because you believe the opposite, mm-hmm. things become much more, um, what was the phrase? I, I had this conversation with my uh, chief elder at our church about like, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we have so many differences of opinion in the body of Christ, but it's tragic when those differences become divisions. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why does that happen? And I think it's because, and I don't know if these are two different things or the same thing, whether when these differences become the basis of our identity or when it becomes a question of good and evil. Uh, the, yeah. On one side, you're, yeah, and, and I almost wonder if they're maybe the same thing. I mean, that, that, that's actually one interesting uh, read on the Adam and Eve story. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, um, you know, when we started connecting identity to good and bad and sort of uh, formalizing shame as opposed to it being kind of a subconscious thing the way it is in many traditional societies. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about uh, critical, critical theory applications to that and critical race theory and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, at its, at its broadest, critical theory um, thrives in an environment where you can easily uh, or you can identify an oppressor and an oppressed. And, you know, I, I, I was looking back at my training as a psychotherapist and, you know, I mean, it's uh, Freudian psychodynamic theory is imbued with uh, oppressed and oppressors. You know, I mean, the parent, the bad parent, the, you know, it's your parents' fault and and there's always got to be someone to blame who's not you, the not me that gets blamed. And it's, uh, you know, is the transitional, the you know, the transitional uh, parent has to be, you know, has to be certain ways. And if they're not, then we're we're marked. And, you know, part of me, it's my frustration with the fact that what I call therapeutic Christianity, everything in Christianity is being defined in in therapeutic terms. And, you know, I, I you know, God gives me a safe place. He's He's concerned, first of all, about my my soul and soul is becoming very synonymous with my psychological makeup. It's hard to discriminate between that and all this. 
and you look at some of our uh, progressive brothers and sisters, and you know, there it's all about uh, it's all about listening and loving. You know, love is love. Let them be them. Uh, you know, and and I'm getting more, uh, you know, more and more concerned about things like that. That that it, yeah, is it is it is it only a difference of perspective, or is there an actual uh, right and wrong, you know, and you know, I think. Well, well, yeah, and, and here's and here's a really fun question: Is there a, is right and wrong the same thing as good and evil? Yeah, 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 really. Right, you know, because that's because you know one could argue that there is in any given context, like the right trade-off between uh, self-expression and um, you know, group cohesion, right? Like, I'm not a big fan of my children screaming at the top of their lungs in the middle of a church service, even if they really right. feel like it, right? But, so right. it's like, okay, so like, you know, we can say that that's wrong, but is that necessarily evil or that's just like, you know, from their perspective, they didn't understand the context, right? And you can draw yeah. a line from that all the way through to the COVID wars, you know, the tension between self-expression, personal freedom, and group solidarity and safety. And like, I wonder if there's actually um, an interesting spiritual move of, uh, for me, it really comes out like the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, that, well, is there a, a, and like we need, I, I think, sorry, right, you were gonna say something? No, I, well, I mean, for me, it goes to, I, I you know, where I, where I get, where it taps into me is like the whole issue of LGBTQ and transgender and the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to let these, old, these kids have every right to discover who, the, what gender they are and make decisions accordingly. And as a, as a society and as a government, we're going to legislate that parents can't know if their kids are getting the drugs. And, and the issue is what does science say? And science is pretty clear what happens when pre-pubertal uh, people start playing around with hormones, you know, serious lifelong situations in terms of physical characteristics. And even in spite of, uh, in spite of uh, some cultures which are encouraging or allowing that, an incredible suicide rate and, and dissatisfaction with life. And yet we're supposed to sit back and just agree to disagree or accommodate, you know? I mean, that's, well, well, I for me, that's yeah. an evil. Well, so here's an interesting question, right? So I had a friend of mine who uh, set up a meeting with me uh, under a different name. Uh, this is a guy who's not a Christian, doesn't self-identify as a Christian. He, I've worked with him at Apple um, and had various conversations about spirituality. And he announced that he was decided that he's a woman. And so he's going to be going through the, the change, right, in the process. And mm -hmm. it's like there's many ways to look at it. But the question I keep asking myself, you know, I'm pretty sure the Bible is against uh, um, adultery and against uh, promiscuity and being a prostitute and all these things like that, right? I mean, it seems like that's a pretty safe statement from Scripture. And yet the way Jesus related to the woman caught in adultery and the prostitute doesn't, like there's not really a lot of evidence from the Gospels that Jesus spent a lot of time thinking about or working with these categories of good and evil with ordinary people. With the Pharisees, yes, 
Absolutely. And so the question I keep asking is, okay, clearly there is right and wrong. Clearly sin has consequences, right? No question about that. The, 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 the question is, what is our posture and how we relate to people who are caught in these systems? Right? Well, uh, you know, like, I think I would have two different apologetics with the, this. This here's a, a 50 something year old guy who's beyond yeah. the child rearing years, who has a fully developed um, sexual organs, who, in a sense, wants to take a, a secondary, uh, you know, fem female hormones and change his body structure and do body modification and live the rest of his days as a woman. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, my thing is, okay. I disagree with how that could possibly be that way, but I, you know, that uh, you're an adult. Whereas it's okay. the same guy says, and because I want to do that, we should let all kids who question their gender identity automatically start on a process. And I go, no, there I'm going to fight you to the death right, right, about right. that because but, you know. But, but, but I think that's actually really good because, like, what makes this interesting is this sort of analog to digital transition, right? Mm -hmm. Is that like, there's this continuum and you can say like, I'm okay with a 40 year old. I'm okay with a 30 year old. Um, you know, I'm definitely not okay with a five year old. Like what about a 13 year old? Yeah. What about an 18 year old? What about a 25 year old? Well, like there's some gray area in there. Right. And I think this is well, a fun thing. I mean, yeah, like, and like, the, 18 is legal age to determine some of their own stuff legally. So I'm not going to argue. 13-year-old, sure. I would still argue. 17-year-old, right, I would still argue. Right. So you could, you know, but, you know, the, we, we, you know, uh, the, the, let me just uh, hold on a second here. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah. You see me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Sorry. My son is, uh, uh, can you hear me now? Testing one, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, my son, can hear you. Pick up my son. I'll have to be a little careful about how I talk about some of these things. Although he and I have had similar conversations before. About yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about good and evil and at what point is something good and what point is something evil. And, and there's that, that is, uh, culturally a shifting boundary even even in the christian culture even in the evangelical culture there there are different things going on and the question is where and how do we follow what we honestly believe to be biblical doctrine and stuff like that and there are people redefining that all the time and that that i get very sad when I see the splitting that's going on as a result of that. Now, it's really unfortunate when the splitting starts as a result of masks and vaccination issues, because, you know, give us three years, uh, you know, like, you know, you talk to some people and they, well, your ne government's never going to tell me what to do. And I say, well, is that part of your Christian viewpoint or is that your cultural viewpoint? Now, you know, I think based on, you know, the, the, you know, the other thing is, is that there, there seems to be a narrative that wants to label many of the things that I happen to believe are good as wrong. And, you know, and I curse, I label some of their stuff as wrong too, but you know, I mean, to a certain extent, well, that's why we live and exist in a, pluralistic. In a, uh, a pluralistic uh, liberal democracy. I mean, we, right. we are a Republican democracy. Now, 
you know, it's interesting, um, uh, some gay kids at Fresno Pacific, which is a Mennonite Brethren school, uh, put mm-hmm. forth a desire to start a pride club. And they were all, you know, it was, you know, we're going to just make them do this. They can't stop us. And then they found out that in 2015, Fresno Pacific was one of 200 Christian schools that received an exemption on this particular issue. So legally, they can do, they can say, no, we will not endorse or allow an official club on campus that goes against the values that we perceive in our statement of faith. Well, then they were all upset. Well, how dare, you know, this isn't right. This is abuse and everything. Well, no. Well, just Sunday, a secular, very probable, you know, anti-Christian guy that writes as an ethicist for the, on the Sunday paper, he used that as an example of civil dis- disagreement and civil discussion. The students yeah. brought it to the school. The school looked it over and said no. And, you know, but then there was a number of liberal churches that weren't identified as liberal churches. They were identified as churches and pastors who spoke out in favor. Well, it's always the same guys who speak out in favor. Well, now they're saying, you know, guys, if if Pacific, shame on them, won't let you have a club on campus, shame on them, then you can just come and have your club in a safe place at our church. You know, and, you know, first of all, you know, so now... You know, now you've labeled everything. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking to your amygdala. Uh, You do, huh? Yeah. Because I was having one conversation, and suddenly I feel like you're having another conversation, and I kind of lost the thread somewhere. Oh, well, it could be my phone, too. I was just saying that in the paper yesterday was a great example. Sorry, but like, yeah, so an example of what exactly? Of, of civil dis- disagreement and discussion where the school okay. decided and, you know, and all that. And that, that I wish we could get more of that going on okay. than, than what we have. Well, yeah, and I think the interesting – okay, good. So the – I think this is the point, right, is – I think this is, the, this is the framing I'm playing with, right, is that the real world is a continuum, Right, we have things we see as different shades of good and evil, of permissible and permissible, of um, worthy of raising an issue of versus letting go. And you know, if we get a reasonable group of like-minded people, we can kind of agree on the edges about a lot of these things. Like at this extreme, that's clearly unhealthy, and this clean, it's clearly healthy. But in the middle, it's like, well, I actually think that's okay. It's like, well, no, I think that's really wrong. And it's like. Mm-hmm. To me, the interesting thing about that, and, you know, Scripture is the same way, right? You look at what uh, uh, Moses is doing versus what Nehemiah is doing, what was Jesus doing. It's like, well, okay, I think there's a lot of things they agree on, but there's certain things, maybe because of their context, maybe because of their role, maybe because of their personal character and how they're handling it, that they would deal with things differently, right? And yep. the thing that's interesting to me is when we get stuck on either side, I think it's when our understanding of good and evil feels like it's central to our identity as opposed to um, maybe um, in line with our role, if that makes sense. Like, I think that what Nehemiah did in terms of, like, forcing the Israelites to divorce their wives, despite the fact that God hates divorce, right, it's like, okay, given the role he was in, and the circumstances he was facing, 
that was the line he had to draw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like, you know, Moses having the Levites start skewering their, their, their relatives, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and similarly with Jesus, you know, uh, basically undercutting the ability of the religious leaders to enforce morality. It's like, okay, you know, that's a problematic thing to do. But given his role and what he was trying to accomplish, that made sense for him. And I think that there's a, because um, I think, like you talked about, like, we don't want to get into this place where, like, well, I can't say anything because no one's able to say anything. I think that's actually the problem. It's, it's, it's that we make these blanket sort of good or evil sort of absolutist statements, and we feel trapped. And then when the culture does it, we feel trapped. And when the church does it, the culture gets really angry about it, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like part of what Christing is all about is saying, okay, I see you as you are now. And I see that there's both noble and ignoble impulses, valid and invalid beliefs and desires that are being expressed in this action. And, you know, if I try to reason out logically, I could tie myself in knots forever to like say, mm-hmm. is this okay or not? Okay. I mean, this for me is being a parent, every decision I make is <laughs> I could talk, and I could say like, you know, I have to choose and I'm making a choice based on my values and, you know, my understanding and where I am now, realizing that it's somewhat arbitrary and holding it like that and say, but it's authentic. Like, this is what I genuinely believe, and I'm willing to pay the price of taking the stand and making these decisions and understanding that the law is never going to save anybody, uh, but the law can try and reduce harm in the short run. But the only real answer is the cross of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting thing that I'm trying to explore all these different meditative and psychological techniques for is uh, that's where I feel like the gospel really breaks through. It's precisely at those points where the law is screaming at us, you've got to just stop this because it's wrong, that I'm most likely to do things that end up crucifying Christ accidentally. (laughs) That I end up having to repent of later. And it's like, how do we, we can honor that impulse, right, without being controlled by it. Like, the article was like, you know, we need to honor our emotions without being controlled by them. And I think we need mm-hmm. to honor the law without being controlled by it. Uh, hmm. There's something similar there that I think is at the heart of the gospel. Because, like, you know, I think, you know, Jesus, with the woman caught in the act of adultery, I think he managed to honor the law without being controlled by it. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that is, I think maybe that's the the practice or the discipline or the 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 um, the context that uh, that we need to create. I'm just trying to figure out, like I, I'm, I'm sort of having a bunch of conversations about, like how do I think about this more clearly in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish, and then hopefully figure out how to implement that as a practice. Uh-huh. And, you know, the thing, so the thing with the ideal power of getting people to talk their emotions, that feels like a useful piece of it. I think I'm doing a version of that where I use um, the spiritual, uh, the fruits of the spirit, because there's nine fruits of the spirit to match kind of the nine boxes. And I saw somewhere that there's 17 uh, works of the flesh. 
which is almost two times 19, two times nine. I was thinking, yeah, I wonder if there's a way that we could, and this is the scary part, right? If we can, if people are just sort of in this really dry intellectual mode, like there's no skin in the game, right? If they're not talking about anything, if they're just doing an abstract intellectual discussion, nobody gets upset, but nobody really uh, is um, being authentic or sharing their, their, their core beliefs. Uh-huh. But of course, if you get too close to the core beliefs, then you get the amygdala hijack, and then uh, you know people start exploding. And trying to find the sweet spot of how do we create a provocative, reflective space where the spirit, where the Holy Spirit is the one who's surfacing these issues, and that we're helping each other, saying, "Okay, let's see that, and let me see you seeing that," but then let's see how Christ would intersect with that. In a way that, oh, yeah, this thing that I felt like I just had to stand up for because of the law or I would lose myself, I can actually surrender that to Jesus and see that, like, he is honoring this thing. He is validating this, you know, like your concern about small children doing these horrible things. Like, you know, my friends on the abortion movement, they live in this, some of them live in this state of sort of perpetual uh, trauma at the thought Uh and trying to have any conversation about, you know, how, uh, you know, this comes across as insensitive to women or it is triggering other people's trauma because of the patriarchal, you know, oppression that they experience. And you hear some of the stories, right, of how what some uh-huh. men did to some women, you know, under the guise of defending this law. It's like, okay, I can, I, I can see how there's another side to this that we need to at least uh-huh. acknowledge. You know, it doesn't change you know, the horror of what's going on, but like my trauma doesn't obviate your trauma or vice versa. And mm-hmm. my just indignation doesn't obviate that. And then like, how do we create a space for that? And how do we give people, you know, something that we could practice, you know, online and Zoom that will, um, you know, I'm not thinking we can solve everything in 90 minutes or even two hours, but if we can at least give people a taste of what it looks like and feels like to be delivered, you know, so either they, they do it or they see like, oh yeah, I can see how I felt like that. And I can uh-huh. see how Christ is able to show me a third way forward when I didn't believe one was possible. Uh-huh. So that's the, the problem statement. I don't know where we're going with it, but, um, well, that's, uh, you're plugging along, if not if not triumphantly somehow. That's good. Yeah. All right. I got to go run. Uh, yeah. Great to catch up great with you. To chat. Okay. If you have any other thoughts or Bible passages or news articles, let me know. I would definitely want to get your perspective on this and feed it into the hopper and see what comes out. Okie dokie. Take care, man. Thanks, Brent. Bye. Bye-bye.